Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as always. This is episode 59. Hope everybody's having a fantastic week out there. I myself have had just a wonderful run here the last couple of weeks. I had the opportunity to go out and see the gin blossoms and hang out with our guest all the way back from episode two, Scott Hessel. So thanks, Scott, for hooking a brother up with tickets and always great hanging out with you. Uh, Also got to go see last week's guest, Mark Poise. Uh, He was doing a show here locally with Tyler Farr. So uh, it put on just a monstrous show. Both of those guys are just tremendous drummers and really enjoyed hanging out with them. So that is one of the great byproducts of hosting this show is I get to go see these guys when they come uh, come through here locally. So I really do appreciate it. Uh, so thanks to Scott and Mark. Uh, have a fantastic episode for everybody today. I'm going to be joined by a wonderful Nashville session uh, player by the name of Jerry Rowe. He also has a wonderful band uh, called Friendship Commanders, and we're going to check out uh, everything that Jerry's got going on for 2019. Just a super guy, so please stay tuned after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, we are about to be joined by the great Jerry Rowe. Uh, I had the wonderful opportunity to talk to Jerry uh, back at Nashville Drummers Jam back in December of 2018. That's where I met Jerry. Uh, And we talked a little bit about his career. He's just done a tremendous amount of recording work and comes from a great musical lineage. And uh, as he puts it, he is a a bit of a unicorn as he is a native Nashvilleian living in Nashville. Uh, but when you hear his story, I think you'll understand uh, the history anyway. Jerry also uh, has a band that he plays in with the great Buick Audra called Friendship Commanders. And it is high octane rock and roll, let me tell you. Uh, And he also does tons of country uh, albums, lots of great session work. Jerry's just doing a ton of great work out there. So I'm just absolutely excited to have him on the show. So help me welcome to the Drum Shuffle, Jerry Rowe. Hey, good afternoon, Jerry. How's it going, brother? Pretty well yourself. Man, I can't complain a bit. Hey, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the drum shuffle. We really do appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. I, I, I love talking. Yeah, well, I, don't we all? I mean, I think that's the, the common thread amongst drummers is we love talking about ourselves. 
Yes, definitely. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt about it. So, <laughs> well, cool, man. So I know you've got a ton of great stuff happening uh, in 2019, a lot of stuff to get to, but you know, uh, traditionally what I like to do is start at the very beginning. Tell us where you grew up and how you became a drummer. All right. Well, uh, I'm a bit of a unicorn in that I am a native Nashvilleian and, uh, I'm a third generation musician. My, uh, my, my grandfather was Jerry Reed, country singer, and my dad is Dave Rowe, who met my mom playing bass for my grandfather. Uh, Jerry Reed was on my mom's side. And uh, I, was, I was born and basically handed a drum kit at uh, one and a half. So I actually have no idea why I play drums. Um, <laughs> I don't have a memory of wanting to start playing drums. I just always did. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, my grandfather's favorite instrument was drums. He always kind of wished he was a drummer. He liked loud drummers and featured drummers, and you know, he was pretty instrumental in Larry London's career taking off here in town. So he was very happy to have a rhythmically inclined child in yeah, the family. for sure, man. Well, I, I didn't realize that Jerry was your granddad. So so now I have I have learned something, and... You know, something that gets talked about in musical circles a lot, of course, you know, everybody knows his career, but he was like a first call studio guitarist for much of his career. And a lot of people don't realize just how badass he was. Yeah, well, initially he was a songwriter. Uh, that's what got him his first attention in town in Nashville anyway. And then he started playing on records. Sorry, there's a jet flying overhead. But yeah. He started uh, playing on records, and there's actually a uh, a long list of albums he never played that he played on that aren't really credited. I've been kind of trying to find those and track them down. Like I know he overdubbed on Oki from Muskogee. And a lot of people don't know that. It's it's hard to find these days. They didn't keep good records. Yeah, imagine that not keeping yeah. good records in Nashville. <laughs> go yeah. go figure. So so. Being that you grew up in such a musical family, I, I would imagine you started performing at a very early age, yes? Uh, yeah, uh, my first bar gig was uh, at age 11, actually. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, that's just crazy. So, you've literally, you've been doing this most of your life. Definitely. Well, it's, it's been, uh, all my whole adult life, I've, I've made a living doing it. Um. And, you know, I was, start, I was semi-working professionally in my teens. So did you, I, I mean, did you follow the, the path of the traditional, you know, Nashville studio session guy? I mean, was that kind of your first foray or were you doing like garage bands as a teenager, kind of cutting your own path or both? Uh, well, my, my first band to really try and play shows and do the whole thing was with uh, a few kids of other notable musicians in town. I was in a band with Matthew Hungate, David Hungate's son, uh, Beth Nielsen Chapman's son, Ernest Chapman, Tim O'Brien's son, Jackson O'Brien. And uh, we played sort of a weird punkish, like new wavy rock. And it, it never amounted to anything. We never got any records out or anything like that. But um, that was my first thing. And ever since then, I've always kind of fancied myself a band drummer and wanted to do that more than anything. So the session career kind of was just a natural progression of I was able to make a living playing drums and it just sort of turned into that. I got gotcha. you. Well, you've played on just so many records. I mean, it, it, it would take us probably the rest of the hour to go through your complete discography, but there's a few that I would really like to talk about, but before we get to that, what is your educational background? I mean, did you go to Belmont or, or have you just been in the industry since you were a kid? Uh, in the, in the industry since I was a kid, I've actually an eighth grade dropout. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, Hey yeah. man, it, it, you know, it works for you. I'll just say that. Um, yeah. what was the first big session you did? First big session. Um, my first proper master session was for a Swedish country artist named Jill Johnson, actually. 
uh, she's had some fairly sizable hits over there, but my first big session was actually in LA with Scotty McCreary's American Idol, um, finale songs. Oh, I gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah. And, and those sold quite well if I, if memory serves. Yeah. They ended up on his first record. He ended up having a, a pretty good recording career right after that, but yeah, uh, it was, I forget the name of the studio. It's in Santa Monica. It isn't the village or anything. I don't even know if it's still there, but it was pretty great. It was with Lee Sklar and Tim Pierce, Matt Rawlings. And, uh, it was just awesome to work with those guys, but it's ironic. I definitely moved to LA to try and work more on rock music and stuff. And my first big session out there ended up being a modern country artist. <laughs> you just can't escape it, right? Nope. Nope. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Well, so when you and I were hanging out, um, back last year now, um, we were hanging out backstage at Nashville Drummers Jam and we had quite a, a good conversation about just a, a phenomenal record that you did the drumming on for Leanne Womack. Um, tell, yeah. tell us a little bit about that project. I want to say that that record came out late 2017 or early 18. I can't remember exactly, but it's just uh, it was uh, October 2017. Okay, well, so it, my memory isn't completely shot, but it's just such a great record. Tell us a little bit about that. That was cut down in Houston, is that right? Yeah, we cut it at Sugar Hill, um, where Freddie Fender and George Jones did a lot of their early records. And uh, we didn't actually record in the room where a lot of those records were made because there was a bigger band room. Uh, but she recorded the, the solo vocal stuff in there that ended up on the album. Okay. And the whole idea was just go down to Houston where Leanne and Frank Liddell, uh, her husband and producer, are both from, spend a week there, do sort of a destination thing, spend all day tracking. And it was pretty great because I didn't have my normal allotment of gear available to me. And I ended up with a 60s Rogers holiday kit, 12 Fourteen twenty with no hole in the kick drum, and I just kind of decided to tune him up real high and go hell blame with it. Oh, that's awesome, man! That that sounds like a good time for sure. Yeah. So it was it was really fun. I'm I'm pretty I'm really proud of how it ended up. And basically, what we did day of tracking sessions is what you hear. Oh, okay. So so mostly live then off the floor. Yeah, uh, I think they maybe redid some vocals later. Some like some of them, if there was a problem with them, like the bleed was too too big. Is for a lot of it, Leanne was in the room with us. Like if you hear room mics on the drums, that's what that really is. It's your vocal mic. That's fantastic, man. I mean, that's just so um, you know. Dare I say, not the way business is done in Nashville these days. Definitely not. And there there's something very cool about it because I, I played very quietly on a lot of the record, and that's a big part of the reason why. I had to mix myself and make sure I didn't kill her vocal mic. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, that yeah. that record is just so, you know, I, I, I'm at a blank for words, but it's, it's sonically pleasing. I mean, it just seems like there's a lot of space in that record, which I think you're not going to get if you're, you know, replacing everything in Ableton or whatever, you know? Yeah, definitely not. And, uh, but a lot of credit is deserved towards, uh, Mike McCarthy, who engineered it, we did the whole thing to tape. And, you know, he's done, he did the early Spoon records all the way up to Ga, 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 and some, some Patty Griffin. And he's just a genius and gets really great, punchy but organic drum sounds. Yeah. It, and he was a lot of the reason why we ended up on a Rogers kit. He was like, you need to use a Rogers kit. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? Say, no, I, you know, I have to use my, you know, <laughs> Roland uh, <laughs> V drums. Definitely. I mean, you know, you're not going to argue with that guy. Yeah. What I find interesting is when you listen to a record like that, it is kind of quintessential, you know, Americana, really. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I'm not trying to put words in anybody's mouth, but that's not really the the school you grew up in. I mean, when you compare and contrast that to friendship commanders it's completely different um definitely yeah where do you where are you most comfortable do you like doing the the straight ahead loud rock thing more or do you really like the 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 spacious um you know kind of americana kind of vibe better you know uh and i swear this isn't a careful answer 
But if I start a band and I endeavor, like if I go out on a new musical endeavor or a new project, it's assuredly going to be heavy and loud because I'm a child of the grunge era and I come from a father who was big on me learning prog rock and metal at a young age. And it's also just what happened live in Nashville. The local music community here was that. And every band I knew, all my friends were all making heavy music. That's what we, we grew up on. So it's definitely in my blood, but so is the sort of larger Americana grouping of music, be that old pop, country music, roots rock, early early American folk rock or Canadian stuff, you know, the band. Um, so I do enjoy playing all of it. If I have my own band, it's going to be heavy music. And that might just be because I don't get to do it for in my in my work, right? Right. Anything I do for work is going to be more songwriter, country, or Americana leaning. Just the nature of the business where where I currently live and where I, what I grew up in. So I do enjoy it all. Um, none of it is forced or feels forced. It definitely comes naturally. But you know, if I, I guess if I had to pick at the end of the day, I would I would pick playing heavy music. Well, if I, I was forced. Yeah, right. And you know, I mean, I'm a through and through rock and roll guy. You know, I mean, right. but a lot of the work that I do now is, you know, country or Americana. That's that's what the sessions call for. You know, I mean, that's where the work is. Yeah. Uh, you know, so if, if you're paying your bills, you're going to go play whatever everybody's doing right now. Um, but what I find interesting is I don't think I could pull off a Leanne Womack record the way you did. You know what I'm saying? So it's it, most <laughs> well, guys. Thank you. Yeah, oh, you're welcome. But it's well-deserved. I mean, I don't think most guys can go from, you know, a project like Friendship Commanders. And I think the way you explained it to me was sludge metal punk. Does that sound, yeah. does that sound correct? I guess so. Yeah. It's, it, you know, when you're in the band, it's always like, well, it defies genre expectations and that everybody rolls their eyes, but. <laughs> um, you know, um, to me that fits it most anyway. That's what I hear. And that's what I feel when I play it. Sure. So to go from, you know, sludge metal punk to a Leanne Womack record and pull that off, it takes a certain skill set. Uh, I mean, wh what can you, <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell us about how you do that so easily? Oh, you know, I don't know. I uh, I will say both projects use a similar set of skills that you wouldn't think, like, you know, you need a lot of the same wrist dexterity to do those 16th notes in both genres. Um, and what allows you to get fast in a loud setting is the same thing that allows you to be quiet while, like, holding yourself in place and not make too much noise on the microphones, right? Right. Um. But I don't know. You kind of stumped me there. I don't really, uh, I think part of what would make me a terrible teacher is I don't know why or how I do what I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, <that's... laughs> because I am self-taught. Um, but it definitely all, I mean, it feels like it comes from the same place. It's not turning something on or off. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. feel like the same person playing that stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, I think that's unique amongst self-taught drummers. You know, I mean, I, I've had you know, guys on here that are very well educated, you know, that went to the University of Miami or North Texas or Berkeley or places like that. And they're, they're very learned drummers. I am not, you know, I, I came home and put on the Led Zeppelin record, right? I mean, that's how I learned to play the instrument, but it, it seems to me like when you try to tell somebody else what it is that you're doing, if you're, if you're not classically trained, you have a hard time putting that into words. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. In, you know, if you're going to get, if you're going to get scientific about the differences, you know, let's say in friendship commanders, I play, uh, 15 and 18 toms, a 15 rack, 18 floor, uh, 24 inch kick, eight by 14 snare drum, Pretty thick heads. I use ebony gloss on the toms and kick and the black X on the snare drum. And I play with two Bs and I bury the beater in the kick drum. I use a wood Danmar, uh, rim shot on everything. 
right in the middle of the toms. Um, but with Leanne on that record, I played SD4 combo maple sticks with ball tips, you know, the <laughs> puffy beater bounced the bounce the beater off the head after I hit it. Um, most of it is just right in the middle, no rim shot on a five by 14 Ludwig snare. Yeah. So yeah. those are definitely decisions. They're just responding to the tones of drums and how to get the most low end out of them. Whereas with French of commanders, it's all about crack and I accommodate by having big drums. Yeah, for sure. Well, and yeah. you know, I mean, I just think it's, I think, you know, the, those decisions, um, are, you know, I don't know where I'm trying to really go with this. You know, you've got me at a loss for words now, but which isn't all that hard to do, to be quite honest with you. But those decisions that that are made come from a very I'm comfortable with my playing place, if that makes any sense. That It probably does. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I know what I'm going to do. And here are some decisions to make to get over in this song kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, some of the other uh, great artists that you've worked with over the years, like I, I want to spend some time talking about Rodney Crowell, because I know you've done, you know, quite a bit with him as well. Talk to me a little bit about working with just a legendary songwriter like that. Well, Rodney is at this point in my life, I'd say one of my better friends and we pretty regularly collaborate on stuff. He, he tends to enjoy using multiple musicians on his records and, um, that's great. It kind of keeps things fresh for him. Um, but we properly connected right after I moved back to Nashville when he was doing the tour with Emmy Lou Harris after they did old yellow moon. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I auditioned and, you know, I could do the shuffles and everything and everything just came together for me to, to, get that gig. And the funny, the funny backstory about this is my grandfather is responsible for him staying in Nashville because his first cut was with my grandfather. Oh, really? Um, I, did, I didn't know yeah. that. That's killer. It was, you can't keep, you can't keep me here in Tennessee off Lord, Mr. Ford. Okay. That's awesome. So some cool yeah. backstory there. Yeah. He moved here with his tour manager, uh, Donovan Cowart, who actually also works for Leanne now. Um, they had sort of a folk duo and they moved to town on false pretenses with somebody that had like taken him from some money after they made a record. But he decided, cool, I'm going to stay here and try and write songs. And he had a standing gig in Green Hills at a, at a club that doesn't exist anymore. And that he had gotten in trouble for playing original songs in his set because the guy who booked him only <laughs> wanted covers there. Of course. He said, you play one more original and you're fired. So he did play one more original, got fired, and then right as he was leaving, my grandfather's partner walked up to him and said, hey, man, we're cutting tomorrow if you want to come by uh, <laughs> and sign a new publishing deal. And he got his first cut, and the rest is history. That's so awesome. And and, and so Rodney Crowell, right? I mean, that's of course, that's a right. Rodney Crowell story. Yeah, and then, and then what's amazing, my grandfather let him out of his publishing deal because he had the great opportunity of working with Emmy Lou and the hot band and all that stuff up in Canada. So he did my great, uh, Rodney asked out of his publishing deal. My grandfather said, great, good luck. Wow. That's, I mean, <laughs> so, that, that's fantastic. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, everybody knows that, you know, he, he wrote, you know, uh, some songs that, you know, for example, Waylon Jennings did. And, and, and I mean, yeah, I ain't living long like this. Yeah. So, I mean, but like, Fate's Right Hand is one that immediately mm -hmm. comes to my mind that that just a criminally unheard song. I mean, it, it you know, it just didn't get the attention that it should have, but it's fantastic. You know, all that stuff well, that, is great. That record and Houston Kid and what's so interesting is, um, you know, he, he had sort of the more organic country rock thing going on at first and then had the major hits in the late 80s into the early 90s. And then sort of went away, became more of a writer for a while, and then came back with these really personal records of Houston Kid and Fate's Right Hand um, about topics like people dying with AIDS and, and so on and so forth. And to get to play those songs with him were always so great because it isn't... But outside of um, playing with my bandmate, Buick, there aren't a lot of people that I get to play with who have songs about those kinds of subjects that are so heavy and well-worded. And so I've always really enjoyed 
playing those great songs with him because it feels it feels good just for the soul on top of feeling good playing them as musicians. Yeah, for sure. Well, and you know, I mean, I think the older I get, you know, I get away from the the brainless uh, lyrical content and, and I get, you know, very cynical and jaded about that stuff. And, and I want a song to make me think and, and to move me emotionally. And he is certainly one of those guys that if he puts pen to paper, that's going to happen. Yeah. I, and especially nowadays, I, I, I really enjoy his, his writing as of late from like early two thousands onward. And it's it's all great, but you know the new stuff is is really on a deeper human level. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I know that that you know that's what you and Buick try to do as well with Friendship Commanders, and you know I want to spend some time talking about that project because you know you guys do have a message, and it's not just uh, oh you know we're going to play really loud rock and roll. You know, it, there, right. there is an attitude to it. So talk to us a little bit about that project and, and how it became a thing. You know, really sell us on Friendship Commanders because I want everybody <laughs> to check you guys out, you know. <laughs> well, um, Friendship Commanders accidentally started because a guitar player friend of ours uh, canceled on a gig that we had booked with Buick because she, she had 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 and does have a batch of songs that are more solo material that are more in the songwriter arena. They're softer, more straightforward. They don't rock quite as hard. Um, and so we ended up playing this gig as a trio and she was like, why don't we just rock it up more? And we really liked it. So we decided to move forward with recording some songs that were a bit louder and more rocked out and more, uh, more reflective of her punk history. Cause she, grew up around a lot of DC hardcore and, and punk and, and metal in, in Miami growing, growing up, growing up in Miami where she's from and in our older band, she was in, in Boston and New York. Uh, and we made this EP that isn't really around anymore. It's cause it's kind of softer and doesn't really reflect us now. Um, and ended up recording more and more and ending up really liking it and decided to call it friendship commanders. And there's a whole other story there, but that is yet to be revealed and will be revealed at a later date. But <laughs> Okay. Um, <clears throat> uh, in the meantime, we, specifically Buick, ended up becoming more involved in the local activist community and becoming trans allies, just human allies in general, equal rights activists. And she's at the Legislative Plaza fighting discriminatory bills all the time is a really involved, active human being in that scene. So it's in our lyrics, but more so in our practices in the world. I feel like what's so brilliant about her songwriting is that there's still personal subjects that can relate to activism, but they can end up being about a very specific thing to whoever's listening to them. Right on. And she's managed to pull that off while also all of our releases benefit some form of charity and we like to, we try to play events and do charity events that, that help the less fortunate. And I've, I've been really happy. She's been, she's really kind of been a great example and I've taken a lot from her with that. Um, but to get back on the story, on the story of the band, we, we played with a bass player for a while made a couple EPs and as, as it goes in Nashville, we weren't really ever able to keep anybody because they would always end up getting some form of a gig that would get in the way. Yeah. So uh, after our last bass player ended up getting booked on a wedding gig and couldn't make a gig out of town, <laughs> we decided, <laughs> you know what? Uh, just let's just play. Let's you just plug into a bass amp and a guitar amp, and we'll make the best of it. And it really morphed into this this aggressive, loud two piece thing that's really fun and. Uh, I actually think us being a two-piece is what's made us as heavy and aggressive as we are because we both have to do so much to make up for the lack of a third member. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, yeah. the, you know, the the few power trios that I've played in, you know, it's it, you look over at the bass player and say, hey, man, you got to haul the mail. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's just it, it's it's hard to pull off that with fewer members. It just is. Yeah. 
and a lot of the best three pieces the bass player is is pulling off some crazy gear magic to end up with a gigantic sound yeah that very so. true yes so i i mean when i watch the the footage and i haven't been fortunate enough to catch you guys live yet and i, I hopefully that's all going to change come april right when you guys hit the road right. but right. when i see the footage of you guys playing there is a um, the word I'm going to use is there is a ferocity to it. Now, you know, I'm not trying to scare anybody away. It's not like you guys are the mighty Guar or something like that. But, you know, it, it, there is a ferocity to the music that is amazing. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, playing in this band hurts. It's the most physical pain I've ever experienced. And I don't know why I enjoy that so much, but I do. <laughs> well, you know, you jokingly told me uh, down at Nashville Drummer's Jam, you were like, well, you know, I'll come on the show after the tour and tell you all about my injuries. And I just kind of laughed stupidly, but <laughs> it is full contact drumming, right? Yeah, I've kind of, I pulled out a rib. I kind of pull out discs in my spine, like not lifting gear, but playing. Because uh, I get carried away, and you know I got to get over her massive guitar sound, and I really wouldn't have it any other way. It, it, I feel like I've really done something every night. My hands are bleeding. I, uh, I pit Ebony Emperors within two gigs. You know, it's <laughs> wow, man. So, so you're digging in. Yeah, and um, you know it might sound ridiculous, and you know people who are all hard on technique by being, you're doing it wrong. I'm like, I know, but I don't care. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, you guys certainly have something going for you because the, the new record, um, and I, I'm going to get the date wrong probably, but you guys put out a new record late last year. Um, yeah. In October. Okay. October. So, but it was produced by Steve Albini, right? It was. So, I mean, if you've got Steve Albini in the studio with you, it's, there's something to it, right? <laughs> Definitely. I'd say so. Uh, and he was just a joy to work with. And I do, you know, his drum sounds are pretty legendary at this point. And it's, it's so interesting to see him do completely different things than you see on any other mainstream session. Like there were no dynamic mics anywhere on the drum kit, except for inside the kick drum. And, uh, room mics on the floor the whole bit, the guitar sounds are insane. Uh, and he was just a really pleasant, kind, considerate person to work with. I don't regret it at all. I would do it again. 10 out of 10. Well, I mean, that's, that's good to hear because, you know, I mean, yeah. there's been some stories out there that he may not be the easiest guy to work with. You know, I don't know if you've read any yeah. of that press, but. <laughs> well, you know, I think he may have, uh, he may have had seasons in his life in which he was testier, and uh, I think if you, you know, pardon my French, don't have your shit together and are expecting him to tell you how to make a record when you show up, you're going to be very disappointed. Yeah, right. I mean, well, uh, and yeah. that's what a good producer should do. I mean, he, he shouldn't be there to babysit, right? Right. Well, there's something to that in in a production sense, too. There There are bands and or products as they were that need more help and more guidance getting to the finish line. Um, he's not your guy. He's a he is a self-professed engineer. He doesn't necessarily even consider himself a producer, but he produces more than he likes to think he does. Uh, he had some ideas in the way he does things. We we would have made a different record without him. Therefore, we had to give him production credit. Yeah, and happily so. Yeah, for sure. Well, mm -hmm. I, so let me ask this, and, and I think you might be able to offer a unique perspective on this, given that you are you know, a session guy, that's how you pay the bills. Do you ever worry that your work in friendship commanders being so different than the Nashville scene, do you ever worry that somebody like a Leanne Womack would say, well, yeah, we probably don't want to get that guy because, you know, look at this stuff he's doing with friendship commanders. I mean, do you, do you ever get any of that, you know, nonsensical industry pushback? Well, it's funny you say that because uh, Frank Liddell is definitely a friend and I've known him for years at this point. Everyone around me knows about the band, including Dan Huff, who I work with pretty regularly. Uh, and it doesn't affect their perception of me at all. Uh, 
And in fact, for some reason, I've become the guy that's thought of when you want more of a groove-based, like, organic drum sound. <laughs> so, <laughs> so your uh, reputation you know, does not precede you, in other words. Yeah, I don't really get booked for playing like a hard rock musician that's, in town. See, that's uh, amazing sometimes. to me. I mean, that's just yeah, amazing I, to me. I do sometimes. Uh, there was a situation in which I played uh, on a... On a Molly Tuttle's new record. She's a great uh, Americana bluegrass artist. She won instrumentalist of the year. And uh, I did it with Ryan Hewitt. And Ryan was like, we need to hire this guy, Jerry, to play on the record. He's going to be great. And she went online to look me up. And all there was was videos of me playing with Friendship Commanders. <laughs> and she's like, I don't know. But, you know, I guess, uh, you know, he's in a band with a woman. That's good enough for me. And so, <laughs> <laughs> That's- so it worked. I don't know that it hasn't caused me trouble in that way, but I definitely haven't seen it. And I don't know for a fact that it has. I gotcha. Well, you know, I mean, I just, you know, I mean, there's just very few guys, you know, that are session based players that, you know, for example, if you want that certain something, you call Keltner. Or if you want right. the other certain something, you call Steve Gadd. Or if you want, you know, the third option, you call Matt Chamberlain. You, you know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. it, it's like you you kind of know what you're getting with those names. Whereas you, I mean, it, it really does run the gamut of your credits. I mean, it's two completely polar opposite things. So I, I was just curious if, if you'd ever seen any pushback from anybody. Not that I can really, really say for sure. Nothing that has been relayed to me or that I've directly experienced, at least re- recently in my real age of being a working drummer, maybe early on. Um, but nowadays, not really. Uh, I, I gotcha. It seems like I've clearly made my statement, I guess. And, it, and you know, I, I never could have expected. I definitely thought my more... Uh, my my more rock tendencies would be what I'd get hired for as a working session drummer, but that is just not really what happened. It it does sometimes, but for the most part, no. Yeah, I got you. Well, I mean, that's cool. I mean, I, I was just, I, you know, I just curious, you know, more, more so than anything. Um, I want to talk about another project that I caught you on um, just a few weeks ago, actually. Um, I, you are a, um, Minel endorser, correct? Yes, I am. Okay. So they brought you into the studio to kind of show off their new symbols that they unveiled at the NAM show. And yeah. you did some videos for them to kind of show off this new symbol line. And, you know, I caught that on social media and I was like, wow, you know, this is just tasty, grooving drums in the studio. So it, tell me a little bit about that session. Was that one of those things where you were like, uh, okay, sure, I'll do it. I, I mean, how did that happen? Well, it's, it, this has been a long conversation. Uh, I've actually been a minor artist my entire adult life. I've been with him for 16 years. And okay. I, I signed is the minute basically Chris Brewer got the job and I've been with him ever since. And Chris has become a really good friend. Uh, I'm not the best at self PR. I'm not much on Instagram. Um, and I don't make videos of me playing because the interesting thing is I'm working in the studio most of the time and I can't actually film myself playing and share video of a drum part on an unreleased song and be the guy in the recording session with a camera. It's just annoying and I won't get hired anymore. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and uh, I've dived more into being a session drummer recently. And so Chris's idea was that these symbols are more of an artisanal, like high-end symbol designed to be played with care in a very organic environment. So they're great in the studio. Mics respond really well to them. So he wanted to get video demos of them basically being used in a studio environment. And... Also, he was like, you know, we haven't made a video with you yet because you aren't really like the chopsy show off guy with a big Instagram presence. So I think this would be a great idea to get you out there and, and um, get the symbols demoed in a very organic way where you can hear them, where there's space for a crash to be hit and like bloom and go out and decay. Right. 
So the concept was write some music cues where it would sound like just the vocal was muted. It would sound like stuff that you would play on. And so I, I, uh, called in some favors with some friends, uh, came up with some quick compositions and they're, you know, went and shot basically me tracking drums on a recording for a song. that doesn't exist, but is, <laughs> is like something that would happen. We did four. I think two of them are out now. Uh, I think two might be, two more might be coming. I gotcha. Well, and, yeah. and I'll just say, you know, first of all, it was great playing. It sounded incredible, but you know, I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say those are probably not instruments that you're going to take out on the road with with friendship commanders, right? Oh, definitely not. Uh, <laughs> I've you know, I ended up getting a set of those symbols. I've been using them basically nonstop, uh, and they're great. They're everything I could ever want. A recording symbol. Uh, I will not be hitting them very hard with two B's on the road. <laughs> yeah, it's a touche. So uh, yeah, <laughs> I just and then, I, you know that's not that's not what they're designed for, and that, that was the idea. They have they have a lot of symbols that run the gamut with heavy drummers and fusion drummers, um, but they wanted something that was more of a like something like what an Aaron Sterling would use, or I guess me. Yeah, for sure. Well, and a great job on it. Um, so we've kind of hit all around it, but let's talk a little bit for a minute about um, Friendship Commanders. You guys are hitting the road uh, here in April. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what we're going to see. Are you guys, are you in talks with anybody for opening slots or is it going to be you guys out on the road as a headlining kind of thing? What's going on uh, in, in the touring department? Well, uh, I, there's nothing I can talk about right now. Okay. Uh, well, of but, course not. Yeah, but I had I had to ask. You know that. Yeah, we our our booking agent and our our team are which we have now. Thankfully, we 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 haven't until recently. Uh, we're putting together some good stuff for the later half of the year, and in the interim, we're going to be touring, headlining, and putting together small bits of shows here and there, just basically trying to promote this record as much as possible. And we feel the most alive on tour, so it's what we like to do it as much as we can. Um, and there's, there's going to be a big push to get overseas. We really want to do that. And so the next two years, I think we're going to promote this record and, you know, we're already working on stuff for the next album, which is pretty exciting. It's, it's already pretty different from Bill, but still sounds like the same band. That's killer, man. I mean, that's, that's, that's good news. I mean, I think so many bands, we, um, you know, I think it was Warren Haynes and I've said this on this program before, but Warren Haynes said, you know, we do this all backwards. We go into the studio and release these new songs and then spend the next 14 months on the road, learning how they're supposed to be played, you know? (laughs) Oh yeah. And our songs are so different from once we tracked and I'm like, man, I wish I could go record this right now. I would do such a better job. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's just, yeah. it's just kind of how the industry is, but you know, so many bands, I think they, they get a good record together. They go out on the road for, you know, 12 months, 18 months, whatever the case may be. And then they're like, okay, I got to sit in my chair for four months before I even think about writing. But your guys output is pretty prolific i mean you guys are constantly writing which i think is is really cool yeah and again i have to uh you know not to sound like i'm trying to downplay my involvement in this band but buick writes everything pretty much on her own we've co-written i think three songs together but for the most part these compositions just show up and they're fully formed with buick and i might have an arrangement idea but um you know, we're definitely like a team playing live and production wise, but she's the true creative force in the band. And I, I really, I really like, I don't even want to bother with changing that or soiling that, like making it more of a, I write equally, or we play songs that I write thing. It, it really is such a cohesive project with her. Such a great voice. I'm just so happy to be a part of it. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's good to hear as well. You know I mean? Because what is the old joke? You know, the drummer's last words is, Hey guys, I wrote some songs, you know, <laughs> that kind yeah. of thing. You're fired. Yeah. Um, I, well, you know, so we're really looking forward to seeing you guys out on the road here before, before too long. Um, where can we all, you know, kind of dial in and, and figure out the dates and where you guys are going to be? Is there a band website we can hit? 
Yeah, we got a website. We're, we're everywhere. We've got a, a regularly updated website, a newsletter, Facebook, Twitter, all our music's on Spotify and Bandcamp. Uh, we have some stuff that's on Bandcamp that isn't available on Spotify. Uh, we've did some Halloween singles where we, we covered some songs, including uh, local great Iodine's Swan Dive, a uh, band Jay Joyce used to be in with Brad Pemberton and Chris Feinstein. Um, but yeah, we're, we're everywhere you might think we would be. Okay. Good deal. Well, we're, we're going to send everybody that way and I'll make sure that I have a link as well over at the drumshuffle.com so everybody can find you now. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome, brother. You're welcome. So one of our big traditions here on the drum shuffle is we always ask our guests for a good piece of advice. Um, you know, and and this can be for other musicians, other drummers, whatever it can be. But, you know, I think you're going to have a pretty unique spin on this because, you know, your, your output is on both ends of the spectrum, you know, from Americana sessions to, you know, as we said, metal sludge punk (laughs) duo kind of thing, which is awesome. I love saying that if you, if you haven't already (laughs) noticed, but, um, yeah, it's fun to say it it really is. Um, but you know, give us a piece of advice that we can kind of take out into our day-to-day lives, Jerry. Well, I've tried to find a more concise way to say this, but, um, I think as a working drummer, there's a degree of calculation that is required, uh, uh, you know, calculation, planning, trying to be a jack of all trades as it were. I wouldn't get too lost in that because I think the thing that's going to make you rise to the top is having your own voice that comes naturally. Um, it seems like the the players I see attempt to be a jack of all trades and almost try to predict what producers and artists are going to want before they even know it uh, and kind of lose their own voice. It never quite works out for them. Yeah. So be nimble uh, be as versatile as possible, but don't lose your own voice and nurture it and make it as good as as good and unique as you possibly can. Yeah, that's great advice. And, and you know that that leads me to another question. You know, you you do so much work in the studio. Tell our listeners your approach when a producer says, "Okay, that's Jerry. That's really not working for me." You know, a, a lot of guys will get territorial at that point and go, well, why isn't it working? Right. And, and you know, resentments, anger, whatever the case may be. But talk to us a little bit about taking direction on sessions. Well, I like what you said um, that, you know, on road gigs, especially you can see certain players almost try and make like a, an enemy out of their bosses. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I mean, you're there. You were hired. So they wanted you there. Uh, even if you're the second or third call, you're there. It's happening. Um, so if it's not working, you, you shouldn't really take that too personally and understand that they have their faith that you're going to figure it out. And you should know better than they do on your instrument right anyway, right? Yes. Um, yeah, it's not about who's right, really. It's about kind of the big picture and getting the final product that was the dream from the beginning. Yeah, that's well stated. It's about the final uh, product, you know. So, I mean, I I just thought you might be able to add a a little bit of color to that. So, um, thank you. And that's challenging a lot of the time. You know, some people don't have the vocabulary to tell you what they want. They just know it ain't working. So (laughs) that's a skill in itself to figure that out. But you got to, you know, keep a cool head and um, not take it personally, unless they're like, your playing sucks. At which point it's a little weird. <laughs> well, yeah, For, fortunately, you know, that doesn't happen very often. I'm sure it has, yeah. but uh, it, it yeah. does, it, you know, most everybody's a professional in that setting and we'll say, yeah, yeah, it's, you know, this isn't working for me. So then you got to kind of think fast because time is money in the studio and mm-hmm. figure out, okay, well, what is it they're trying to get here and, and, yeah. and work through it. And, you know, I've rarely seen it come to that. Sometimes there can be some some weird psychological mind games going on. Uh, but even then, a lot of the time, people's intentions are good, even if they're not going about it the right way. 
Yeah, so, you, you hope you don't have to relive, you know, Fleetwood Mac rumors or something like that on a session. Yeah, you know, it's yeah just, and you know, I think everybody in the early stages of working is, is more prone to take it personally or feel defeated or like they felt because they didn't get it right the first one or two times. But, I mean, even the, the greatest, most well-known players deal with that on the highest levels. So, Indeed. And, you know, I had the great... Chris McHugh on this show um, late last year and you know he, he made the comment I said do you ever you know play a session and then when the when the album or record or single or whatever comes out go man what'd they do to me and he goes man there's been stuff that's come out that it was not me at all you know it was so chopped up that you know they would have done better with a machine kind of thing so you can't take that personally. You just no, and you know, at the end of the day, if it does well, you're still going to get a SAG after check, or maybe if it ends up in a commercial and you got paid, you were able to buy dinner and pay your mortgage and or rent. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's the name of the game, is it not, brother? <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, well, well, fantastic, Jerry. Man, I can't thank you enough for taking time to come on the drum shuffle and talk with us. I really do appreciate it. And it's, um, you know, it goes without saying it's an open invitation. Keep us posted on everything going on with friendship commanders, your, your session career. Um, you're welcome on this program anytime, dude. All right, man. Thanks again for having me. I had a great time. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we're going to send some folks your way and, uh, hopefully we'll catch you guys on the road, uh, here in just a little bit this spring. All right. Look forward to it. All right. Thanks, Jerry. We'll talk to you soon, man. Thank you. All right. All right, everybody. That's going to wrap up episode 59 of the Drum Shuffle. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. We simply cannot do this show every week without all of you guys listening in. We truly, truly appreciate you doing so. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to listen in. We have a ton of great shows coming up that you're not going to want to miss. Next week, I am going to be joined by the great Jack Bruno. Jack is out on the road currently with Delbert McClinton. And of course, he spent uh, quite a quite a number of years playing with both Tina Turner and with Joe Cocker. So it doesn't get much bigger than that uh, in terms of resumes. So you're going to want to hear that. So hit that subscribe button. We love hearing from you throughout the week. Our email address is the drum shuffle podcast at gmail.com. Our web address is the drumshuffle.com and you can find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. While you're there, go ahead and click those social media links. Follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. We do try to share uh, information about the show periodically throughout the week. So I do appreciate you tuning in. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. <laughs>